This morning we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of Isaiah, and we're on Isaiah chapter 11 this morning, if you might like to turn to that chapter. While you're doing that, uh, Clarence Darrow was an American lawyer. Uh, He died in 1938, and he once famously said, when I was a boy, I was told that anybody could become president, and now I'm beginning to believe it. I have to think about that maybe a little bit on a Sunday morning. It's amazing to think that he made that joke 120 years ago. I have no idea who the American president was at the time. I did come across a few other quotations about politicians, but they're not really appropriate for a Sunday morning service. Jokes about politicians are nothing new. This week I did come across a quote by the Greek playwright Aristophanes, who lived in the 4th century before Christ. Uh, He was a playwright, and one of the characters in one of his plays speaks these words to a fellow character. He says, You possess all the attributes of a manipulator, a screeching, horrible voice, a perverse, cross-grained nature, and the language of the marketplace. In you is all united, which is needful for governing. To me, the problem really seems to be getting worse. I sometimes wonder to myself how we moved from people like Nelson Mandela and Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill, who, let's be honest, still had their faults, but how did we move from people like that to the men who occupy those positions today? People in our world are really looking for men and women of integrity and knowledge who can lead them. Well, the situation is actually nothing new. The people of Judah, living in the time of Isaiah, were just as desperate for ethical, godly leadership. At present, they had a king, King Ahaz. But listen to what the Bible tells us about him in Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and also made idols for worshipping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Not only that, but as we saw last week, Ahaz had made a unilateral decision that was going to devastate the country of Judah. He'd made an alliance with the king of Assyria. He'd tried to bribe the king of Assyria to fight against Israel and Syria, and his decision backfired spectacularly because Assyria would turn on Judah, and the weakening of the nation would lead to its eventual collapse And you and I know the frustration of watching leaders make awful decisions that affect the common people of the land. In times like this, then, people cry out for a deliverer. Is there anyone out there who truly cares? Is there anyone who has the knowledge or the competence to get us out of the mess in which we find ourselves? Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, we read how what people cannot do for themselves, God himself will do for them. 
Before we read the passage, let me uh, read something to you that I came across this week from Sally Lloyd-Jones's The Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is a Bible that we present to every child that we dedicate here at Pinelands Baptist Church, but it's really good for adults too. This is what she writes in the introduction. Now, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done and is doing. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Last week, we had a look at a passage that spoke explicitly about this baby. Isaiah says, for us, for, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And now in chapter 11, Isaiah uh, expands that picture slightly. He uses a, a different image. Uh, and let's have a look. Seeing as we studied a whole three chapters last week, we'll look just at 10 verses of Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. 
They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. This is God's word. So just to give you the context for this passage, at the end of chapter 10, we read how Judah is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians, and we read how in turn the Assyrians are going to be destroyed by God. At the end of chapter 10, Isaiah says, See, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power, the lofty trees will be felled, the tall ones will be brought low, he will cut down the forest thickets with an axe, Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. It's not a pretty picture. Israel and Assyria are decimated. All that can be seen across the landscape are dried up tree stumps. The Davidic line has come to an end like a tree that has been chopped down and burned. And yet Isaiah sees God doing something to the stump that no human being can do. Even though the Davidic line would be dead for 500 years, God would fulfill his promise to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, said God to David through Samuel. So as Sally Lloyd-Jones points out, every story in the Bible whispers Jesus' name. And I'm going to say right up front that this passage is about Jesus. Uh, It can refer to no one else. There has never been, there will never be a king quite like the Lord Jesus. And let's look at what Isaiah says about Jesus' kingship. When it comes to any earthly leader, there are probably three things that we want to know about that man or that woman. Uh, Three things that we look for. We look for qualifications, we look for performance, and we look for results. And Isaiah gives us that um, in this passage. We look at the Messiah's qualifications, performance, and results. Firstly, his qualifications for kingship. And the qualification is that he will be endowed with God's Spirit. If you look at verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, you'll remember that in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit came on particular people at particular times for particular tasks, normally a task that couldn't be done without God's help. Um, So Samson killing the Philistines or Gideon uh, annihilating the Midianites. God's Spirit wasn't permanent in the Old Testament. He would come and he would go. But here is a man on whom God's Spirit will rest permanently. A little bit later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord by saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you'll remember how Jesus reads that passage out at his very first sermon. And then he says to those who are listening to him, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The spirit of the Lord is on me in a way that he has never been on anyone before. So someone on whom the spirit rests. And then Isaiah uses three couplets that describe the effects of the Holy Spirit resting on this man. He's the spirit of wisdom 
and of understanding, the ability to see into the very heart of issues. There's also counsel and power. So insight to know what to do and the strength to put it into action. So often leaders know what they should do, but they're just unable to carry it out. That's not true of this man. There's knowledge and fear of the Lord. So somebody who knows God and fears God. You notice the wonderful paradox in verse 5. We're told that he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Uh, we looked at fearing God last week. Um, and here we see that fear of God is, is not a terrifying experience. It's a joyful experience and a liberating experience. Because when we fear God, when God is the most important person in our lives, then the rest of life falls into order as well. It's a liberating and a joyful thing to fear God. And because this man knows God fully, and is supremely concerned to please him. He can be depended upon not to be a self-serving leader, but to be someone of integrity. Secondly, in this passage, we see his performance. If you have a look at the second part of verse 3 to verse 5, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So righteousness means the ability to do the right thing in all circumstances. And faithfulness means to be dependable or true. And so in other words, these two terms speak about an individual who's got integrity and consistency, and so you can depend on him completely. On the practical level, we read that he'll judge with righteousness. You know, any human being can judge only uh, by using their natural abilities, the ability to listen carefully, the ability to think clearly in order to make a right judgment. But this king will go beyond natural abilities. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. He's got the ability to distinguish between the appearance and reality, a knowledge that goes far beyond what he sees with his eyes or hears with his ears. And how many times don't we want to be judged like that? We know our intentions, and people see our outward actions, and we want to stop and say, no, no, you don't understand. You don't know what I meant. You don't know what I intended. Here's someone who can see into the very heart of the matter. So interesting then, in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes about Jesus, and he says that on one occasion, Jesus would not entrust himself to the people listening to him, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew the heart. Now, absolute justice demands absolute knowledge. And this person does have perfect knowledge. He'll make right decisions. He'll dispense true justice. And he'll do so particularly for the weak. He'll judge the needy with justice. He'll give instructions for the poor of the earth. So as one writer puts it, here is a king in whose hands the concerns of the weakest 
will be safe. How different uh, to the leaders that we often see in our world today. And his very words have power. It says he'll strike the earth with the, the rod of his mouth. So often in our world, the words of our leaders are just so much fluff. They have to be careful and guarded about what they say because they've got their constituents that they need to keep happy. But here is a leader who owes allegiance to no earthly pressure groups. He can say what needs to be said in any given circumstance. And the force of the, of, of the truth of his word is, is undeniable. So we've looked at the qualifications of the king. We've seen his performance. What, what are the results of his reign? Have a look at verses 6 to 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They'll neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As far as I know, a part of that verse is written outside the United Nations head office, and yet they've left out that second part, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, because that's what makes the difference. Here we have a world set to right through knowledge of God. There's no more harming or destroying or fear. And this isn't just a pretty picture of animals getting on together. This is a reversal of the curse. Remember Genesis chapter 3, God saying to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. One day the very curse itself is reversed And everything goes back to what it was before sin and death entered the world. Such a powerful image of this little kid playing next to the viper's nest. Um, I I know of a missionary couple, uh, just by hearsay, a friend of mine met them. Uh, They lived in Kenya. And one day this missionary couple was sat outside of their house and their two-year-old daughter was inside the house and they saw a cobra going in the front door. They were absolutely terrified. They crept up to the door of the house, not wanting to make any sudden moves. And when they looked inside, they saw the most horrific sight. The snake was in the living room and was actually wanting to try and get out of the house. But every time he slithered, the little girl would hold onto its tail and pull it back. <laughs> and this, you know, it, fortunately it wasn't, aware that it was being held. It just thought it got itself caught somewhere. But it kept on moving, and the little girl kept on pulling it back, this cobra, and the missionary couple were sort of quietly calling into the window, you know, let go of the nice snake, dear. (laughs) One day, that fear will vanish forever. The fear and, and, and the fear of death. Now, of course, the question comes, when will this happen? Because it's not something that we see about Jesus' reign at present, is it? Well, it's so interesting. These words are repeated a little bit later in Isaiah, in Isaiah 65. We read, the wolf and the lamb will feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They'll neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And that verse is a climax of a section that begins like this. 
See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. So when we read about the wolf and the lamb grazing together, the child playing on the hold of the, of the cobra, we're reading a description of the new heavens and the new earth. Someone has described biblical prophecy as being a little bit look, like looking at a, at a distant mountain range. When you look at a range of mountains from a distance, all the mountains look as, as part of one range, but when you get closer, you can see that there are foothills, foot, foothills rather, and, and midlands and, and the highest peaks. And the same happens with biblical prophecy. You know, Isaiah is looking at the coming of Jesus from 750 years away, and he sees his first coming, and his second coming. But from a distance, those two comings seem right on top of each other. And indeed, Jesus' first coming inaugurated what's finally going to play, take place at his second coming. In Revelation chapter 21, right at the very end of the Bible, we read these words from the Apostle John. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. How do we know that this is true? How do we know that this isn't just wishful thinking or beautiful poetry? Well, if Isaiah could look at Jesus and predict his coming 750 years before it happened with such accuracy and insight, we can know that his prophecy about what will happen in the future will equally come just as true. This isn't wishful thinking. This is a description of the, of the very end. Well, so far, so far we've looked at the qualifications of the king, the method of his reign, the results that will follow. But, but I want to ask one further question, and that is, how does all of this take place? And there's a very important little word that Isaiah uses in verse 10. It's the word banner. It's a word that he's already used in chapter 5. He's speaking of God. Isaiah says, he lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the end of the earth. Interesting to see that God whistles. But now instead of God raising a banner, God himself becomes the banner. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. That word banner is used a couple of times in the Old Testament. It refers to a sign or a signal, a placard, a standard. It's used for the snake that Moses puts up on a stick that anyone who sees it may be healed. To me, it's so significant then in John chapter 12, Jesus says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John adds, he said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. In what way is this king a banner for the nations? Well, the shocking reality is that he is lifted up for the world to see on a cross. One writer puts it, the nations come streaming to the God who in himself has satisfied his love and his justice and has opened up a way for us to come into his presence. 
Well, so far this morning, we, we've seen that, that Jesus is a, a competent king filled with God's Holy Spirit who reigns and rules and one day will reign and rule over the world. But what are some of the practical implications for us this morning? It's a very beautiful picture, but what does it mean for us? Let me mention three things as we close. Firstly, I hope that this description of Jesus as a competent leader someone with integrity and faithfulness and righteousness inspires us and makes us think, perhaps this is someone I can trust with my life. Dallas Willard is a, or was rather, a, a Christian philosopher um, who died just a few years ago, and he speaks a lot about this in his books. He says that many people don't follow Jesus today because they're not sure that he is competent or trustworthy. Jesus often isn't seen as a real living man. For many people, he's hardly conscious. He's often taken just to be a religious icon, a ghost-like presence who lives on the margins of real life where you and I live. He's okay in the role of sacrificial lamb or high priest or alienated social critic. Jesus is fine for things like funerals. He does very well there but he doesn't have anything to teach me about running my business. Dallas Willard says, though, we cannot say Jesus is Lord if we can't first say Jesus is smart. He isn't just nice, he's brilliant. He's the smartest man who ever lived. Jesus is master of fields such as algebra, economics, business administration, and French literature. How could it be otherwise? And it says, at present he is supervising the entire course of world history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in human life. What lies at the heart of the astonishing disregard of Jesus in the moment-to-moment existence of multitudes of professing Christians is a simple lack of respect for him. He's not seriously taken to be a person of great ability. But what then can devotion or worship mean if simple respect is not included in it? By contrast, the early Christians saw Jesus as one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if that's true, as I believe it is, then maybe Jesus knows how I can run my business Maybe Jesus knows how best to teach a class of wriggling five-year-olds. I can ask him about anything because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we've seen, in him there is a competent king who acts justly and acts with faithfulness. Secondly, I think these verses have something very important to teach us about Christian hope. You know, some scholars have looked at the book of Isaiah and they've said, you know, well, this isn't really prophecy. All that happened was that Israel went through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They went through the exile. They came back into the land. And then certain Jews in that time wrote the book of Isaiah as if it were prophecy. In other words, they wrote down history and they pretended it was written down before the fact. But there's another scholar who's very competently pointed out that if... Sorry, I'm at that age now where I can't see you if I wear my glasses, and I can't see my sermon if I do wear my glasses. 
This is very sad. I have to do something about this. This is very, very sad. <laughs> Thank you for your sympathy. I know many of you are. One writer's pointed out that if the prophecies had been written after the fact, there would have been no nation left to give them to. There's no way Israel would have survived the destruction of Jerusalem, the 70 years of exile, unless they had these promises to keep them going. Unless they had God's promise about a return to the land and a coming messianic king, they would have just dissolved into the rest of the nations. And you would never have seen them, just like the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Termites and all of the other ones (laughs) that have just disappeared. It was this hope that kept them going. And folk, the vision that Isaiah gives here of a world put to rights and the final eternal reign of Jesus can keep us going, even in the most horrific circumstances. In a nation that has horrific levels of violence, gross inequality, corruption, injustice, in a world where there are leaders who are crass and rude and arrogant and who make decisions that have devastating consequences for the rest of us, we remind ourselves that one day the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And even in the personal crises in which we find ourselves, we remind ourselves that we are safe, safe in the arms of an eternal and everlasting king. And then thirdly, Isaiah 11 describes the character and the actions of someone on whom the Holy Spirit rests. And we need to remind ourselves that the same Holy Spirit who rested on Jesus now lives in you and in me. In John chapter 20, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Many Christians, when they read Isaiah 11 and Revelation 21, uh, they, they, they read these passages and these images of God's coming reign, and we often maybe sit back and we wait for the vision to become a reality. As John Ortberg says in one of his books, uh, some Christians pray a version of the Star Trek prayer, beam me up. But Jesus never told us to pray to escape from this world into the next. Rather, he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, make up there, come down here. The same Holy Spirit who rested upon Jesus lives within us. And what he produced in Jesus, he wishes to produce in us. Righteousness, faithfulness, concern for the poor and needy, those without Christ. And that means that whatever we do in Jesus' name brings heaven down. Whether it's visiting someone in hospital or in an old age home, whether it's praying for the Alpha Course, whether it's teaching the Sunday School, whether it's packing food parcels, whether it's writing to prisoners, running a children's ministry, you and I have the immense privilege of hastening the coming of God's kingdom. We get to share Jesus with people through our words and through our actions. Whenever we share the gospel, whenever we bring God's healing, whenever we reconcile 
with someone with whom we've been at odds, then God's kingdom comes, little by little, until one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea.